Well, good morning. Welcome. Let me start by thanking all of you on behalf of the other elders for the cards and the gift basket. Um, I'll read those cards today. You, you probably don't know this and may not even believe it, but I save all of these cards. I have a big box in my office at home, and I keep them all. Kind of a sentimentalist, wouldn't you say? Just don't, don't tell anybody. But thank you. We all love serving here. We enjoy your company, serving alongside you, worshiping with you. I can't think of any place I'd rather be. So thank you. Um, let's, let's talk about Romans. We're in the book of Romans. We have been for a while now, and we're going to finish the first chapter today. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 1, verse 29. So you know that for several weeks now, we've been studying this absolutely dreadful description of the human race. Maybe the most dreadful in all of literature that you would read. And it's provided for us here by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. And it really begins in verse 18. That's where this section sort of started. It began with the rejection of God by people, by mankind. And that proceeded to God's abandonment of man to his sin. Whereby man fell and falls into this horrible pit of depravity that we've been describing and will continue to describe today. And he does that to his own detriment, to his own hurt and to the hurt of others. In the verses that come today, Paul is going to complete this description of man with a list of vices. Really, it's a catalog, if you will. There's 21 items in it. And yes, we're going to look at them all, although very briefly. So how should we handle this? How do we look at this list of just how bad mankind is? How do we face such a devastating unmasking of ourselves, of people? Well, some choose not to face it at all. These verses describe what theologians refer to as total depravity. We've talked about this before. And the truth is, people don't want to hear it. So some churches will change the message to fit cultural demands. They'll preach about things like man's goodness or his potential for betterment. Maybe they'll talk about the comfort that the gospel provides without speaking of that which it cures. I mean, we know Jesus' restatement in the New Testament of his law in the Old Testament, where in Matthew chapter 22, he says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what God wants from us. But in our rebellion, we refuse to do that. Theologian and professor John Gerstner says it like this. He says, man as a sinner hates God, hates man, and hates himself. He would kill God if he could. 
He does kill his fellow man when he can, and he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. So it makes even the most simple summation of what God wants, love him, love your neighbor as you love yourself, virtually impossible. And so I guess my question is, is this true? Is Gerstner's description of man true? Many pulpits and classrooms are silent on the topic of the depravity of man, but the secular world isn't. They write as, it, as if they've never met a virtuous man. Gerstner goes on to claim this. He says that psychiatrists say that if you scratch the surface and thus penetrate beneath the thin veneer of human culture and respectability, you lift the lid off hell. Pretty dark description of mankind. So let's read today and see Paul's description of mankind and see if maybe that makes us feel better or worse. Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verse 29 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 29 says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but to give approval to those who practice them. That's quite a list of examples of man's wickedness. So, this morning, we're going to take a look at some of them. I mean, most of them need no explanation, right? As we're going through that list, many, if not most, if not all of them, you know what they mean. But I want to mention them to you for a couple of reasons. One, just as a reminder of some of the details of what they mean, and two, so that you hear them. Because sometimes we need to hear them said right to our face to appreciate that this is true. So let's start. We'll do the first two together. Numbers one and two are unrighteousness and evil. Or some of your Bibles may say unrighteousness and wickedness. And these are very comprehensive and general words, as you can imagine. And they're synonyms for each other. They are going to encompass the entire range of everything that follows after it. So it's almost like he's saying unrighteousness and evil, for example, and then he completes his list. But these are numbers one and two, unrighteousness and evil. And then we get to the third one, which is covetousness. And we know, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that this is prohibited in the tenth of the tenth commandments, uh, ten commandments. And You also know that this is, if you just look casually, you almost assume that this is the basis for marketing in the Western Hemisphere today. It's not so much whether you need something or not, but hey, he's got one, so I probably need it too. It is the desire to always want a little bit more. 
I mean, I collect things. I collect weird things, like pocket knives. And if you ask me how many I need, the answer is just one more. Even though I only carry one at a time, I, I need more. Now, when we talk about this desire to always want more, we're not talking here about what you could refer to as proper ambition. There's a proper desire to improve oneself, uh, particularly when we know that it might benefit others. You can become better at your job, not just so much so you can make more, but you can be more productive, you can help the company, you can provide better service to your customers. That's a proper ambition. That's not what we're referring to here. The term here describes a passion for more, the lust to advance oneself, and often at the expense of others. It can even express how we see God, because not only are we saying when we covet what someone else has, we're not just saying that God gave it to that other person, but that he should have given it to me. So it affects our view of God and his gracious giving of gifts. That is covetousness. Next, we look at malice. This word denotes that deliberate wickedness that really delights in doing harm to other people. A lot of us in this room have accidentally or unintentionally hurt other people. Even when our actions were intentional, we didn't understand the consequences of it, and so the hurt that we inflicted was unintentional. It's a completely different thing when we are malicious, when our hearts are full of malice and our desire is to do other people harm. This is one of those vices that Paul lists as descriptive of mankind. Now, I've already told you there are 21 items in this list, and these are just the first four. And it's dangerous when we try to read into lists like this, things that aren't there. So it's a little bit dangerous to try to group these logically and assert that that's what Paul meant. So we'll do this very lightly. This is not dogma. This is just sort of observation of the list. And the first thing we see is that these four, it says that they were filled with these things. Of course, it says that about the next group as well. But these seem to be offenses against things that other people possess. We're covetousness of it. We want it. It is that form of wickedness and evil. And it can lead to malice and the desire to do harm to them in order to get them. Earlier in Romans, we talked about mankind's hatred or contempt for God. His refusal to acknowledge him as God, his insistence on worshiping other things rather than the true God. Now Paul is going to show us that man has a similar hatred for man. It's not just God. So in this next set of sins, we'll see things that can actually apply to their person, not just to their belongings, to their property. And this list is things like envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. So let's look at these very quickly. The number five one on our list is envy. So we spoke of covetousness earlier, right? 
uh, where we describe this condition of never being satisfied, of always wanting one more. Envy is related to that. However, envy includes another element, and that element is not just greed, but jealousy. And that is, I'm jealous of you for having it. Not only do I want just one more, but the reason is because you do, and I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of what you have. And so that's envy. Number six on the list is murder. Do we need to define that for you? That's also in the Ten Commandments, right? However, before we just gloss over this and think, oh gosh, there's one that doesn't apply to me. I want to remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 where he said not only are we talking here about the outward taking of one's life, but we're also talking about the hatred in your heart that could lead to it. So before you just gloss over this one, consider Jesus' teaching about our attitudes uh, and the, the feelings and thoughts that we have about other people. So that's murder. That's actually Matthew chapter 5, starting, I think, in verse 21, if you want to check on that. Number seven on our list is strife. Now, the root meaning of the word has to do with debate. And you may think of debate, if you were on the debating team in school, as a very um, organized, a very um, proper way to share opposing views with the idea of convincing the other party. And there are certain things you can and cannot do. It's very structured. And so we tend to elevate that as a proper way of resolving differing conflicts. But this word doesn't just refer to debate, but rather to the more seedy or bad side of the idea, and that is the idea of contention or quarreling, strife. And we see that a lot amongst people, don't we? Just pick a topic. Let's throw out politics. How many of you have calm and ordered and disciplined conversations with somebody on the opposing side of the aisle? Very often it's contentious and it's a quarrel. Or religion, even Denominational differences, strife comes out more quickly than we would like. The next term on our list here is deceit. Now Paul is going to return to this idea in chapter 3. In verse 13 of chapter 3, he talks about these people that use their tongues to deceive. This denotes a person who uses their speech to ensnare someone who is unwary, uh, to trick them for personal gain. We mentioned earlier that covetousness might be the basis for Western uh, business. It could be this one, too. If you have a very cynical view of advertising, you could claim that it's out to trick you. Uh, you'll look younger, you'll feel better, you'll whatever if you buy this product. Deceit. The next term, number nine on our list, is maliciousness. And this word comes from two Greek words. The first one is kakos, which we see, well, actually it means evil or worthless, even pernicious. We see it in words like cacophony, 
which you know is a word that describes discordant sound. So the word there is a combination of kakos and ethos. Ethos means habit or custom or usage. So what we have here is the idea of customary or habitual evil. The malicious person is one who is normally set against other people. Who is out to harm them. Malicious. Again, it's hard to group these, so don't get hung up on trying to do that. Sometimes Paul is just writing out of the things that come to his mind. I know he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes it's not a straight outline for us to be able to follow. Those of you who like to outline things. Um, so you could say, I guess, if the first four describe sins against property and the next five against other persons, you could look at the next six. One commentator says that those are sins which flow from the sin of pride, which that's probably possible since I think most sins flow from the sin of pride, but we'll, we'll go with that for now. And they are certainly, at least among this list, some of the most harmful of the vices we've looked at. So number 10 on the list, gossips. Never happens in church, um, but it's on the list for those outside of church who might read Romans, right? The Greek word sometimes means whisperings. It refers to the slanderous gossip that is spread in secret and is harmful to another person's reputation. This is a deadly vice because so many times you don't know that you are being gossiped about until many, many people have already heard. And it's virtually impossible to correct that. Gossips. Next, we have slanderers, number 11 on our list. This takes gossip one step further. Gossip is generally done in secret, behind someone's back. Slander is done openly. The word means to speak against someone or to defame them. Slander. Now we have an interesting one. Number 12 on our list is haters of God. And you might think, that's way out of place. We're talking about man's sin against man, whether we're talking about against their property or against their persons. This is the things men do to each other. Why is haters of God in there? And yet it seems to actually fall into place here between slander and insolence or pride or arrogance, which is next. Because it seems like Paul is saying here that not only is our slander against man, but it's against God too. That we are not even above slandering God out of our haughtiness and pride and arrogance, which is what's going to come next in the list. Man, I think, would never... Well, maybe they will now. I was going to say, rarely do we hear men that say they do actually hate God, but that was maybe in a different age. Now I think it's probably more common. But nowhere do they show this more than in their condescending attitudes. Um, again, you scratch beneath the surface. You allow something bad to come into someone's life and you immediately see how their hatred of God boils over. As they'll shake their fist and wonder, how could God let this happen to me? 
And if they could, they would take their hands and strangle him. They're haters of God. Next on Paul's list is insolent. We don't use the word insolent very much anymore, but you've surely heard the word from Greek that it comes from, and that is the word hubris. And the word hubris means pride, but it's actually a special kind of pride. It is a pride that sets the human being up against God. The ancient Greeks regarded this as the greatest of flaws and one that their gods would not tolerate. Hubris, insolence. 14, haughty. Mankind is haughty. Now some of us may think that when we're dealing with the culture around us and its absolute depravity, maybe arrogance is a virtue. We are properly belligerent against a hostile culture. But it is rightly included in this list, haughtiness or pride or arrogance, because arrogance rises from a feeling of personal superiority, and it regards others with haughtiness. Robert Haldane, a commentator, says this. He characterizes the word as describing those who are puffed up with a high opinion of themselves and who regard others with contempt as if they are unworthy of any interaction with them. Haughty. Boastful. Number 15, of course, it's easy for us to to see how that is based on pride. It is to seek the admiration of others by either claiming something we don't own or claiming to be some way we aren't. It's boastful. Now, up until this point, all of these vices in the original Greek are represented by one word. But now Paul seems to need two words to characterize where he's going from here. So there's a couple to follow here. Um, There are three words in English, but there are two words in Greek. So let's look at those two. The first one is inventors of evil. Now we've spoken in here before about creativity and creation, especially when we talk about creation ex nihilo, from nothing. That creation, that creative quality is only possessed by God. Now we have some creative people in the room. Some work with paint and brushes, others with with camera. I was about to say with film, but that just proves I'm old. Just with cameras and SD cards maybe. Uh, Some work with musical notes, others with words as they write. So... We like to think of them as creative, but they're different from the creativity of God in that they're taking things that already exist, words or musical chords and notes or paint and canvas or even the beauty of nature in representing that on a canvas or on a uh, photo. So that's not the same type of creativity. God alone is creative in that way. We merely rearrange the things that he's blessed us with in artistic and creative fashion. But here it's almost ironic that Paul suggests that the one area in which we are truly creative is in inventing new ways to do evil. You see, the old ways are not enough, they're too slow. 
or too ineffective or too unproductive or too dull. And so we expend our efforts to make more. And you can see this in Psalms, Psalm chapter 106. In the King James Version, it says this in verse 29. Psalm 106 verse 29 says, Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions. Inventors of evil. Number 17 is a good one. How many of you are surprised that being disobedient to parents is on a list like this? It's on a list with murder and malice. Disobedient to parents? Come on. Everybody does that. That's not fair. But few things characterize our day more than children's utter disregard for the wishes of their parents. It's the culture we've become. But don't feel too bad. It had to have been common in antiquity as well. There was a lot written about it. It was in the Ten Commandments. So we know that it must have been an issue then. It's not new. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And lest you think that's Old Testament stuff and we don't need that anymore, Paul refers to it in the book of Ephesians, where he refers to it as the first commandment that comes with a promise. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So you see, the reason this is on the list is not that the severity of disobeying their parents is the same as the consequences of you murdering someone. But the reason it is there is because when young people disobey their parents, they're revealing their true natural condition. It is a picture of what is wrong with mankind. Even the youngest of children, which we want to think are cute and fun and nice, even they are afflicted by this depravity that we're talking about. And, the, and so they disobey their parents. So it's on the list, number 17. Now, the Greek word for disobedience there, the one we just talked about, is a compound word, and it begins with the prefix for not. It's ah. It means not. Just like the term not righteous is what is used in verse 29 for unrighteousness. So not obedient. Well, this seems to have stuck in Paul's mind because now we're going to get to four very similar terms that all Include that prefix, ah. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So let's start. Number 18 on the list, foolish. Some translations of the Bible will have without understanding there. But I think it's still important for us to know what kind of a lack of understanding is Paul referring to. One commentator put it this way, the persons so described were not destitute of understanding as to the things of this world. As to these, they might be the most intelligent and enlightened. 
Rather, it was in a moral sense or as respects the things of God that they are unintelligent and stupid. All men are by nature undiscerning as to the things of God, and to this there never was an exception. Again, we're describing natural man, undiscerning as to the things of God. Paul refers to it as foolish. Now then we get to faithless. Now previously we've talked about faith, and we did talk about the Greek word, which is pistis. However, in this sense, this is not the word that is used in the Greek. The word here is built on uh, the Greek word of tithemi, and it means to put or to place. And what Paul is getting to here is it refers to breaking an appointment or breaking an engagement or a covenant. And so the idea is not faithless in that they lack faith in God. I mean, obviously, just three or four terms ago, we learned that they were haters of God. But rather, what we have here is the idea of breaking faith. And that means that these people will solemnly commit themselves to something, but they cannot be trusted. They are without that kind of faithfulness. So they're faithless. Number 20, heartless. Literally meaning they're without natural affection. And when you think of natural affection, you may think of the love for a, of a mother for her child or even a father for their child or their family. So consider without natural affection, you can see this in the mother who would intentionally abort her child or a father who would abandon his family. Those are natural affections that we should have. They are heartless. Next is ruthless. I don't know of anyone really outside of maybe Wall Street who would take pride in being considered ruthless. It means without mercy. And we tend to think when we read something like Romans and we see the word ruthless, your mind may go back to the Colosseum and the gladiators fighting. They are ruthless. They were without mercy. Their job was to kill. And they became very good at it. But the truth is we live in a ruthless age. Consider when people deal harshly with you. It's easy then for you to believe them to be unmerciful. But I think it would be surprising perhaps to us to discover how often cruelty can be at the heart of even the gentlest of people. We live in a world corrupted by sin and ruthless without mercy is the last one on our list. Quite the hit parade, wouldn't you say? So it's hard to imagine anything more horrible than this great catalog of human vices. Not just because they're bad as you read the list, but because they are with us everywhere. Now when we look at a list like this, I'm not teaching this morning that every individual is equally guilty of every one, or that there haven't been times in history 
that are more or less demonstrative of these things. But at best, they are all just below the surface of our respectability. And they quickly become apparent whenever you cross our sinful nature or scratch the surface. Back when I taught Sunday school, I used this example a lot. And that is what is inside comes out most easily when you're squeezed. And you can consider the example of a tube of toothpaste. You rarely know, I don't think there are very many, if any, that are clear or have a clear window. Most of them are plastic or aluminum or something. You're not sure what's inside until you squeeze it and it comes out. For us, we are able to put on a veneer of gentleness and beauty and kindness and consideration. But when those events in our life come that squeeze us a little, then what's inside, really inside, tends to come out, breaking out of the veneer that we try to use to hide who we are. And so that's when we see the true nature and true character of people is when they are squeezed, when they go through trials, difficult times. That's how I can say that there are parts of these in all of us. The residue of that sinful nature is there. I saw some describe this, this whole list, as a foretaste of hell. I mean, we know that hell is a place without the presence of God, right? And so if it is a place that is free from the presence of God, it will also be free from the restraints of His holiness. So when you look at the last two or three messages, look back the, the, since verse 18, and you consider that the human race has chosen to go its own way without God. And a result, as a result of this choice, God has abandoned them to their sin. We have made earth even more hellish than it was already. The horror of that choice. But the horror of that choice serves only to reinforce the beauty of the gospel. It is why it's when all of our blinders are stripped off and we see the depravity of the human race, the glory of the gospel becomes apparent. It bursts forth just like it did for Paul when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Those verses then can become for us what they became for Martin Luther, who referred to them as the door to paradise. That's when the gospel is seen to be the power of God for salvation. Regardless of how corrupt the person is. You cannot out the gospel. All you have to do is come to Christ and he will forgive you. He said, we don't deserve the gospel. I mean, how could we? We can't even imagine it or invent it. But because God is not like us, he's not wicked and evil and greedy and depraved and senseless, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless, or anything else on this list. Not only could he invent the gospel, but he did. We have one more verse in our list here. And we touched on this very briefly last week. But I want to see what we can learn from it this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, as part of my preparation for these sermons, I usually read these verses in several English translations, and then occasionally we'll dip into the Greek to learn a little more about a word. But I read this verse in the New International Version, and it got me to thinking. Let me read that for you. It's going to be very similar. Although they know that God's righteous decree, uh, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So I don't know if you noticed the difference there. I didn't put both verses on the screen at the same time, and most of you aren't carrying both of those Bibles, but there is a subtle difference. The wording that caught my attention was that they continue to do these things. Why do they continue? Why can't we sin just a little bit? I mean, most of us don't want to make utter shipwreck of our life, and we know that sin is destructive to our lives. So why can't we sin just a little bit? Hopefully, after reading Romans 1, you can see that the problem is that sin never stops at that just a little bit point. It is a downward spiral The problem with sinning just a little bit is that each bit is followed by just a little bit more until God is banished from your life entirely. Now, the last two weeks, we've looked at this downward path, and it has to be downward, doesn't it? If God is the source of good, and the Bible says that He is, then to abandon God is to abandon that good and to launch yourself on a path that is going to lead progressively to all that is evil. If we'll not have God, who is truth, then we'll find falsehood. If we'll not seek God, who is holy, then we're going to pursue perversions. And if we'll not have God, who is the source of all reality, then... What we'll have is unreality, things like fantasies and dreams and that lead us to disillusionment. What a picture of the culture today. Doesn't that describe the world in which we live? So, as we mentioned last week, verse 32 states that not only will we continue to do these very things, but we'll approve of those who practice them. And can we be honest just for a moment? Approving of those who practice them. This is insanity. Of course, it's moral insanity. But it's important for us to see, before we get all judgmental, it's important for us to see that this is exactly the point to which rejection of God and suppression of His truth leads. John Calvin comments, Men left nothing undone for the purpose of giving unbridled liberty to their sinful propensities. For having taken away all distinction between good and evil, 
they approved in themselves and in others those things which they knew displeased God and would be condemned by his righteous judgment. For it is the summit of all evils when the sinner is so void of shame that he is pleased with his own vices and will not bear them to be reproved and also cherishes them in others by his consent and approbation. They approved of them. But is this the bottom rung of the ladder? On our path downward, is there an even lower rung than this? Is this the bottom? Is there a bottom? I mean, I consider this occasionally, especially when I think in terms of our declining culture and and more specifically in their moral sensibilities. Is there a bottom? Is there a point at which we'll pull back from this decline and say, this is where we stop. This is terrible. This is a point beyond which we will not go. Is there a point in our culture like that? Now, I used to think that the culture seems to accept and tolerate many sins, as you know, including sexual sins that the church would find objectionable. But I thought that even though they do that, it would stop if any of these things were inflicted upon children. I used to think that. I don't think that anymore. I'm not sure there is a bottom to man's depravity. There are no lines that we are not willing to cross. There are no points beyond which we will not go. Mankind just continues down this dismal, destructive path straight downhill. I mean, perhaps the worst indictment of this is not the list of vices, but it's when Paul says that those who practice such things deserve to die. We do these things even though we know better. In most societies of the world, even in those that are considered uncivilized, most of the sins here that Paul lists are considered wrong and many are considered crimes. Men inherently know that such things as greed and envy and murder and deceit and arrogance, disobedience, mercilessness, all of the list are wrong. And every time we sin, we challenge and defy God's right to reign over his creation of which we're a part. We defy his right to impose obligation on us as creatures made in his image. I mean, who are we to tell God that he has no right to restrain our behavior? We're just men. You see, fallen humanity has declared independence. And the result is this judicial abandonment by God where he's given us over to our sins. Well, we can't stop there, can we? I'm running out of time. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up as we prepare to close. Let me just say thanks be to God that Romans doesn't stop here. The gospel, the good news is coming in Romans And we will see it in all of its glory. You see, people who don't care about the good news might care if they were to digest the bad news and realize what our Savior has done, what He saved us from, what He has saved us for, what He has saved us to. 
See, we are saved in order to be conformed to His image. We are saved to love the things that He loves and to hate the things that He hates. This section of Scripture, beginning in verse 18, started with the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Perhaps after reading and studying the remainder of this chapter, we can realize why this is happening. God's response is the inexorable consequence of man's rebellion, of his bad decisions, of his behavior. So my question to you this morning is, are you a slave to these consequences of your bad decisions and bad behaviors? It's interesting, over in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of men very similarly to the way he does here in Romans 1. He says in verse 14, uh, but their minds were hardened. He compares them to someone who's trying to read God's law, but there's a veil over their face. And then he says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he goes on to say, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So there is a way to escape these consequences, this downward path to ruin. And the way, according to Paul there, is to turn to the Lord. And then you'll see the beauty of the Lord and of his statutes. The veil is removed. You can see the folly of taking your own path. You can be free from your bondage to sin. This is where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom. So turn today to this Jesus. The Bible says later in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess, believe. Today can be that day for you. So while our musicians play, I will invite you to come down here to the front. I'll be down here. I'd love to speak with you about this good news of the gospel. Let's pray together.